Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. The Practical Guitarist Podcast is brought to you by Great Lakes Guitar Pickups. Great Lakes Guitar Pickups provides fantasy tones at prices of practical guitars to the world. Featuring top-notch construction, attention to detail, and a fully custom product, if you can dream it, Great Lakes Guitar Pickups can probably build it. Follow them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Pickups. Are you a regular listener? Why not? David here reminding you of all the ways you can participate in the Practical Guitarist Podcast. Subscribe using your chosen podcast app. Review us on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or Google Play. Find our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash practical guitarist or on Twitter as at practguitarist. Support the show. Merchandise is available in our Threadless store at practicalguitaristpodcast.threadless.com and donate to us via Patreon available at patreon.com slash practicalguitarist. Reach out to us directly via email at questions at practicalguitarist.com. Good evening, Jim. Good evening, David. Uh, how's how coronavirus doing down there? Pretty good. Right, you got you got COVID nineteen yet? Um, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Yeah, because you're still working, right? I'm still working. As a matter we, of fact, uh, uh, we got declared. Like, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying we we um, we got told that we can we can work remotely, but tomorrow we're supposed to get some news on our um uh our what do you call it? Um, our contract. So I kind of have yeah. to be there. So we are uh, we are on lockdown here in the state of Illinois. Um, we are yep. not supposed to go out for anything other than going to the local store to get groceries and yep. uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, restaurants are still open for delivery and carry out, but that's pretty much it. Oh. So I have taken it upon myself to stay in my house. And hibernate. <laughs> um, yeah. I am. I am working. I am working. My wife is working. My daughter is working from home. She. They gave her a laptop. I think we talked about this in the last show. She's now doing her schoolwork from home. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. This. This is crazy. Like this is unprecedented. But anyway, so didn't stop me from shopping this week. Um, I okay. needed some strings. Me so either. I went to string. I went. To string. Oh, nice. I went to string. And did they um, get back to you? Let me. Let me. Because I know you had mentioned it earlier. Uh, it took uh, a couple of days, but they're yeah. probably inundated right now. So um, I ordered I ordered a set for my seven string. I ordered a pair of them, actually. Um, That's a good and I'm idea. I'm going 10 to 64. And my guitar came with 62s on it. I've been running 59s because that's all I can find. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going 64, and the reason I'm going to 64 is I think even the 61 that was on its stock was a little floppy, um, right? And I think this will help with some, some tuning issues I have when I'm playing on the low string. Yep. Um, it tends to be like, it tends to like do the the thing where you pick it just hard enough that it goes out of tune, and then comes back into tune, and I don't like that, so I'm trying to get it to where it doesn't play like a spring. Um, right. I am told that this is the reason that there are the scale the the um fan fret guitars um but i think you could probably just overcome this by using a bigger gauge string 
uh, which, you know, that's yeah. what most people would do. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm moving to 64s. Oh, cool. Which it, I hope I don't love it too much because 64s are hard to get in other brands. So I'm married to string joy at that point. Yes. I, I wouldn't think that it would be too bad being married to string joy, at least not at that, you know, I mean, if we no, were teenagers well, and it was hard to, strings before. yeah, they were great. Yeah. My opinion. I mean, they were, they were fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were great. And uh, I'm actually kind of excited to put them back on my guitar. To be, be yeah. completely honest. Um, well, this will be the first time the, that the uh, Kiesel has had them on it. So. No. Right? Uh, yes. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Correct. So just a reminder, I, I turned my volume down a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah. I went to yeah, I went to get a it's Godin. My, uh, Godin. It's my Godin uh, LG P90 that I got a couple weeks ago for the uh, P90 pickups <clears throat> we got from uh, Great Lakes Guitar Pickups. It has P90s in it. They're Seymour Duncan's. They're really, yep. really good. Um, and I'm when I give away the other pickups, I'm putting the P, I'm putting the Seymour Duncan's in there, and I'm just leaving them. Um, yeah. And actually, I told my wife today, I said, the, the goal is to, uh, I'm going to stainless steel fret this guy and put uh, big jumbos in it. Because this thing yeah. sounds really, really good. Um, it's it's very, very loud acoustically. I'm sure we've That's talked cool. about that on the show already. But oh, I don't yes. think I showed it to you, so I think I grab it. I'll uh, try to post a picture in the show notes. If I don't, somebody call me out in the Facebook group. I'll post a picture of it. Um, it's ugly. But it it's a good it's a good guitar. Like it, I, the only thing I don't like about it is the frets are real low right now. So the only thing about Godin's are just like we talked about with with um, I think we said it with uh, what do you call it? Some uh, what's the name of them? Um, uh, come on, uh, Epiphones. That the the headstock is just kind of uh, and I actually Godin, love the headstock. For me, Golden for me is a little bit, uh, you know, the headstock's a little bit ugly. I think they're fantastic looking. Um, I really? much prefer them to Epiphone. And I think, oh, maybe, yeah. I think the whole, the whole way the guitar, you know, I know people hate them. They think they're ugly, um, the body shape and stuff, but I think they're, they're like, they're an interesting modern perspective. Anybody who says that, and then they'll tell you, oh, I love the way Reverend looks. Shut up. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just come shut on. up. <laughs> so I also purchased something this week, but not as big a deal. <laughs> uh, not no, nearly. that's not true. No, it no, isn't. That's not true. No, really. Yeah, two items. It's even Jim. Oh you, yeah, two. You, you got it. You're right. Two. Oh shoot. Yeah, that that's the other thing. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about that. <laughs> I was thinking about something completely different. I okay. I went to Sweetwater this week. Don't don't tell any of my Guitar Center brethren. Um. I ordered, I yeah, I know. Um, I ordered a uh, um, the the control pedal for my uh, Marshall, um, not the two channel one or the two button one, but the six button thing. Couldn't get it um, mm -hmm. from from Guitar Center, so I had to order it from Sweetwater. For real, for reals. Is it just out, or they don't carry it? We, it didn't seem we carried it. it. It didn't say not in stock. It didn't say coming soon. It didn't say anything. The 9106 is not carried, at least that I could find on the website. 
is it something that's supposed to be original equipment and you just nope. didn't get one? Nope. I got the two channel. The two channel comes with it. Or the, the two button comes with it. The 9900. Yeah, 40CR. Yep. Yeah, the 40C, right? Yeah, 40CR. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yep. Uh, yep. But you see that if you go to Marshall's site, you can also get the optional 9106, which yeah, is. Yeah, the uh, 91016, right? Yep. Yeah, you're right. 91016, where the uh, one that comes with it is like 9006 or 91006, something like that, which is the, the two button. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that they don't. I mean, even Toman has it. So why is Guitar Center not carrying it? I don't know. I'm wondering if that's a boo-boo in our system. I'm going to have to look at what we call uh, yeah. green screen tomorrow. Well, I mean, there is um, the amplifier foot switches section at Marshall. I'll see if I can see it real quick. I don't. Yeah. Maybe they just call it something else. That's a possibility. Because um, I know that's like the MIDI. Is it? Yep, is that's it, the MIDI uh, one. Out of just dumb question but sure. is it different than the mg4 series yep okay so it is the same thing as that all right yep just curious yeah um yeah but you guys don't have it on your website so that's kind of weird yeah. it is uh, kind of weird especially considering that that's like just part of the regular marshall line it's not like an exclusive anything no no that's why i said to you i th i said it's the um, sweetwater exclusive but not really yeah, so I, I noticed, Jim, I'm just going to let our listeners know, there's a lot of lag in this episode, um, and I think it's just the network connection is just, like, yeah. super slow right now. It's not your super fault. Poopy. It's the – it's I think everybody is online right now. <laughs> think, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, people are working from home. We Our, our work connection is horrendous. We we sit online, and, and I don't care who you are. Um, uh, the whole – of the Coast Guard base is, is only if you need to be there, do you be there? Um, so I imagine they're going to, they're going to close the onboard PX, which is, which kind of sucks because we kind of, mm -hmm. and they already closed the, um, we don't have a mess hall per se. We have a paid mess hall, but uh, it's, a, it's called the wheelhouse and it, that, that looks like it's closed. Um, so I did order what I also ordered from, from Sweetwater, not that it has any interest to anybody, but I ordered some more um, power cables because I need a lot more power cables. Um, I had two that just went bad; they don't work, which I found weird. And they're they're not the ones well, that have the positive would, one and negative on the other. They're just bad. I would I would go for the um, for the bigger the gauge that you can get, and I would not buy from an electrical or from a for a music supplier. You can get there's just an IEC mains cable. Find the biggest gauge you can get, and get them from somebody else because you'll save a ton of money. Oh no, I meant the um, the little two point one millimeter things. Oh, oh, you're talking about you're talking about pedal power supplies. Pedal power. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have a Voodoo Lab Pedal Power Plus, don't you? Yeah. Two of the two of the black to black cables that are. Normal nine volt, nine volt negative center oh, cables. You're just talking about bad. those cables. All right, I thought you yeah. meant like the transformer. Okay, yeah, I was I gonna know. say, um, are, are they bad or are they like negative polarity or so? You know, like did you do you know that the, 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 the ones that the ones that are different polarities 
um, have a red tip. So you know, do not use this unless you mean to use this. And then yeah, there's one right. that has a white tip that's also something else different. Like it's meant for AC or something like that. Because they do have AC. I have, I gotta uh, stop. So I've had uh, three Pedal Power Pluses at this point. I had well, – I, actually, no. I had four. Um, but one of them wasn't a plus. It was the Mondo. And I have never had one of their cables go bad. And, man, I abused the crap out of them too. Um, which is why I'm kind of surprised to hear that. Maybe they got pinched or something. John Bott wishes he had a um, new episode to listen to on his way home. <laughs> hey, we're well, recording well, it right John, now, John. John, you can, <laughs> your wish we're, would be We're recording it right now. <laughs> um, actually, this will be the first week that we, uh, I think we're going to double up on the editing. I'm going to give it, hand it off to one of our show listeners um, who will remain yep. nameless at this time um, and see how he does with an edit. And then uh, we'll w- decide if we're going to go forward with that. If that, I hope so because I'd like to be able to spend more time actually like doing the cool show stuff that you know our listeners want us to do, rather than right. getting bogged down with the editing rather and than, stuff. I'm um, actually. Go ahead, Jim. No, I'm just saying rather than editing all week long. Yeah, well, and and the challenge lately has been like synchronization issues and stuff like this. The last episode, um, we were off by a good four seconds, and it was like dragging out different places in the episode. So I had to like every three or four minutes listen in and see what the yeah. lag was like, and then adjust. Um, it was pretty brutal. That that episode took about three hours to edit. It was uh, it was one of the more ridiculous. Yeah, so hopefully, um, we can circumvent some of that stuff. <laughs> oh, coronavirus. Um, no, oh, actually, my, my cough is very wet. So, but uh, yeah. I, I don't know, man. Like, um, I'm I'm kind of bummed already because, like, I see all my musician friends on uh, Facebook, like, canceling gigs. I'm seeing yeah. them all live stream right now. And it's like live streaming with a cell phone, which yep. is something I try to avoid doing. Um, and <sighs> I'm just like, yeah, a lot of them are just not – they're not prepared for stuff like that. So a lot of the live and, streams kind of suck. And many of them are like – they've lost their day job too, which is yeah. like – you know, I, one of them – he works for uh, for a local bar and then one of the other ones, um, she lost her day job. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, what are you guys going to do? Because, I mean, we're going to be locked down for at least a month, probably yeah. two. I mean – um, I, I'm hearing, uh, I guess the administration terms today were 10 weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I told somebody it'll be, it'll be May, June before we get out of this place. Can't wait yeah, to get out yeah. of this place. Um, so, well, as soon as the weather warms up, I think they may, they may adjust that, but. Well, they're not really sure because right now they're not sure how the warm weather will affect things. I've been watching the John Hopkins um, site and one of the things to remember and not to get scared of, and I know you're not, um, this is just for our listeners, is remember that the number of cases increase that's been exponential just means that we've been exponentially able to test for it. It does not mean that there are exponentially new cases. So just remember that, no, that yes, fact, there are new means- cases. Right. But, but there are not an even infection rate. I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, we will start. So, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we may have to start over. What, um, 
uh, the, the, uh, we've got to remember that it's our due. We need to do our own due diligence and sit down and uh, just make sure you keep your, your safe distance. Um, stay home. If you're asked to stay home, if you feel sick, don't go around your family members. Don't go around your kids. Don't, you know, stay isolated. Um, get get through this thing. We get through it together, as a as a people. If you know people, and I think I think everybody who listens to the show, this is something that a local a local radio host was talking about last night um, on on a chat our talk station, right? Um, and they were basically saying that. You know, if you know people who are alone during this, can you imagine being alone in your house for like 30 days? Um, I would highly recommend you just pick up the phone and call those people and just have a talk with right. them. Like, right. you know, just like see what's up, like, you know, just touch base with them periodically just to see that they're okay. Like make sure they're not losing their minds because I would yeah. be losing my mind. I called my mother today and – um I said, uh, I want you to know I, I love you very much, and I want you to take care of yourself, and I don't want you out there spending my inheritance. Um, you know, we got <laughs> got to be careful on these days. Uh, somebody at work told me there was a run on the bank, and that they that they the FDIC had capped the amount of um, money you could take out, or whatever. And I was like, Why are you trying to take all your money out of the bank? <laughs> Because if this turns into a real apocalypse situation, I'm talking mohawks and bondage gear, that money's not going to be worth anything. Yeah. So you might as well just leave it in the bank. Exactly. You're, you're risking your life to have paper that will be worthless. <laughs> anyway. Um, All right. Man. So so uh, I also I, owed, I, I added another piece of gear to the collection. I now have a Tone Master um, – Twin reverb, which sounds really cool. Trying to figure out a way to go um, wet, dry, wet with the Marshall. Just something cool. We'll say. That sounds like a lot of work. It does. It feels like a lot of work so far. It's one or the other. Like for me, I wouldn't. I wouldn't try to stereo that. That's that's the the answer too dissimilar. Um, in their gain structure, really, in the sense that, like. You're not going to get the twin reverb to break. Well, I mean, you can you can because you got the wattage switch on it, but the, a twin reverb breaking up, I just don't think that would be that complimentary to the sound of a Marshall. Yeah, we'll see. I'm gonna I'm gonna do some some uh, testing. I need to get some new software. I'll be asking you about that, um, so I can do some testing on that. Because I really um, really need to get um, more channels. Hmm. Hmm. How many how many channels audio you got in uh, Ableton? Two. You're kidding. You can only record two channels in Ableton. I can only mix two channels with Ableton, and um, one. Yeah, that's I, well useless. Four, if you count MIDI, and um, one uh, like what do they call it. Um, Effects loop channel. That's live ten light. Yeah, I need to get I need to get something better. So Yeah, that's that's not even trial wear as far as I'm concerned. That's like I don't know, man. you there's a lot of options out there. Um you really kinda gotta find a, a DAW that works for you because 
everybody like has their own preferences for how they like to work and the workflows can be incredibly different from DAW to DAW. Like I, you, if you remember, I experiment with traction and, and I'm using Cubase. I experiment with traction. Um, I use Adobe audition for the show. Um, and they're all, I mean, they have their good things and their bad things. You got to find one that works for you. Um, I settled on Cubase just because I think the workflow is very similar to how logic works um, with some caveats, but anyway um dude i gotta well, say a, i am go ahead i'm a, i'm used to having like a real mixer but i can't obviously <clears throat> and, and a um you know four track or an eight track recorder um and so i'm not used to having the only two channels um even though i can only create two channels at the time you know, I need more. Well, I can't imagine that it's limited to only having two channels in it. But I mean, I could see them doing the trial software. But yep. I will say, um, I will say, none of them do a good job at being a mixer. Like, hey, this is the, this looks just like your mixer and functions just like your analog mixer. Cubase no, comes no. close. They actually have a mixer in it, and it's just right. a mixer, you know. And then you can drag and drop faders, and you can do all the automation stuff right on screen. Um, yeah. it's not the, I don't think it's the prettiest interface. I think there are some definite flaws with it, but it functions. Well, um, <clears throat> JHS has put up a thing where they like finish our song and I kind of want to do that. And so they give you your stems. Um, you can go into it. Anybody that wants to do it, download uh, the stems and, uh, you know, I don't think I'll win, um, not by a long shot, but I got some ideas I wanted to throw at it. And uh, I thought it would be a fun little thing. Yeah. I, mean, I think it would be fun. I know. No, I'm entering the key. I'm going to enter the Kiesel one. Kiesel has one going Kiesel's on? giving away a free Delos. You're going to do a free Delos. You got to play Kiesel in the video. You got to use their backing track. So I'm going to try right. to come up with something that I don't think other people can play very easily and do that. You? No way. No, I don't think I'm very good at it anyway. But I probably won't win. But I'll try. Um, Let me tell you something. I, you you are definitely not aware of how well you do that stuff. You really aren't. I, it's funny because like I'm thinking about me doing this, and I'm like, well, so there's a couple of things, and I, I do kind of want to talk about my style here for a second. So, um, I come from the school of like perfection right like the guys i listen to are all virtuosos and they're you know they never make mistakes and like you can never hear like an error in their in their recordings and stuff and i'm i'm more like the misfit side of that i'm okay with like things kind of being off or like they're not being you know everything perfectly in tune and if you remember when i started the show i used to talk about like my striving for perfection and now i'm like kind of the other way i want it to be rock and roll and so I'm a, I'm not afraid to like be a little bit ugly with it. And I can do a lot of the technical things that those guys can do, but I have, but my music has attitude in it too. Um, and I say that and I like totally tongue in cheek, like want to wink at the camera kind of way, because obviously right. like I don't control whether it has attitude, the audience controls whether it had attitude, at least in my estimation, that's, that's about whether you believe it or not, but I let things hang out and I do it on purpose. Um, it's, it's comes from the same attitude that drove me to like really get into fuzz pedals and stuff was because I wanted things to sound ugly and I'm okay with a recording that isn't perfect. 
In fact, I think those recordings are usually the best recordings. Um, the stuff on my EP, like even now, I've developed so much as an artist in the last four or five months since I put that out. I look back at it. I'm like, I'm going to redo all those guitar tracks and I'm going to release it as a real album with more with more music. And when I do it, it's going to sound different and it's probably going to sound a lot more developed because I have even I like even just the A, B sections. Like so some of my verses have changed some of my choruses have changed. So like I have variation from chorus to chorus, but it's still the same chorus, you know, um, where I can repeat that phenomena. And if I do it in a live setting, like some of these live gigs that I'm doing are way better than I'm than I play when I'm like rehearsing or when I'm on record which I think is the hallmark of a decent artist, but I still feel like doing this Kiesel thing, I'm going to be up against some stiff, stiff competition. Those guys are, some of those dudes are like scary good players. Um, but I think they're looking to expand their artist roster. And I think that's what this is really about. And I'm kind of hoping that like, not that I will get signed or anything, but that I might get a little bit of a, like a head nod from, from them that, you know, Hey, this guy is doing things a little bit differently. Um, the way I would think about it is like right now, uh, your big players like Guthrie Govan, the guy's godlike, right? And you've got guys like um, Andy James, who's also godlike and is, a, you know, perfection. Like when he plays, you don't hear anything. Like you don't even hear fret noise that's not supposed to be there. Um, I know, it's incredible. And I don't know how those, I don't know how those dudes attain that level. But like, and, and well, I mean, I do. It's just practice and talent and hours and hours of practice and stuff. Um, but I kind of feel like we, I would, if I was going to categorize myself as like what side of the aisle I come from, it's probably more like the Nick Johnston side of things where, um, I'm not afraid to be a little bit more, you know, more organic. And I think that's right. the best way to, to phrase it. My cat is walking on my keyboard. So yeah, I um, heard him. Show. Get out, get out, girl. <laughs> What is your problem? There's no here. We had tacos, so everything's very aromatic. He's trying to get in front of the camera and stuff. Say um, hi, Merle. Food. Yeah, he's he's being a butt. He, yeah. Here. So, so um, everybody's gonna say I'm an animal abuser. Some of my favorite tracks of uh, all time have botches in them, and so when I was growing up. I saw them as, as perfect. I mean, when I when I first heard like eruption, I'll give you just an example. When I first heard eruption, I thought it was perfect. There. And there's a ton of mistakes in there. And Eddie Man, Eddie Van Halen's the first one to say, I didn't even want that recorded, blah, blah, blah. I was just messing around and this and that and the other thing. And whether we believe that story or not, the fact is that it is full of mistakes and he can point them all out. And yet it was it was a pinnacle to which Many of us musicians, including people like Steve Vai and Joe Satriani, were trying to achieve at that time. They were kids at that time, too. And um, so to them, Eddie Van Halen was an adult. <laughs> it's, it's hard to believe. You know, I think, well, Eddie was like 21 or something um, at the time, 20, 21 or 22 at the time, um, if that old. But we're all looking at him. I was 14, I think, when the when the song came out. So I would have been like... 13 uh when they recorded it 12 13 and um so i i hear stuff like that and of course of course let's let's talk about even some of the the bigger stuff the who um uh of course uh 
you know, Hendricks um, and Clapton. Yeah, I was going to say, give and me come himself, on. like, leave stuff in. Yeah. I mean, uh, Clapton was talking about how he would um, he would sit there and he he literally um, said that the reason that that um, the solo on uh, oh what's the name of the song um, oh cross crossroads lasts so long is because they all forgot where the one was and it was like they were just trying to get around they kept playing around and around and around until they could get back to the one Disraeli Gears is one of my favorite albums and it's full of fret buzz and noise and and stuff I mean come on. There's one of my favorite I think a uh, lot endings of those early, to a Yeah, go ahead. I think a lot of those early records, um, especially from that period, like that part of what makes them good is that that you get the feeling that it's totally organic because there are mistakes. Um yeah. and it and things are pretty ugly on some of those records. For sure. I mean <clears throat> you take um let's see, uh da 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 um what is it uh louie louie oh you know that song yeah that whole song is a mistake <laughs> vocally awful it's got mistakes all over it you can hear them them um the 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 harmony vocals aren't in time the you know that and yet great song i mean that it's a song that that made it stood the test of time um you know when you think about, uh, let's see, um, Frankenstein by uh, uh, who was it? Win- um, Winners, but which which was it? Johnny Winners, or was it Edgar Winners? No. The Dead Frankenstein. Edgar Winner Group. Yep, Edgar Winner Group. And I mean, when you think about what EWG brought to the table with Frankenstein and that thing, I'm not saying it's fraught with errors, but you could hear them, and yet they were like, "Yeah, keep." Keep rolling, keep rolling. Let's hear this thing. You know, let's keep it going. Um, in a God of the Vita, 17 minutes of freaking <laughs> just drunken stoner rock, man. <laughs> on on a whole lot of love, there is a part in the outro where you can hear Robert Plant saying, Are we recording baby? Keep recording baby. Like yeah. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff. That's that magic that people have tried to capture in a bottle for decades. And I think yeah. part of it is we squeezed the life of it in the out of, out of it in the eighties. When we decided that we were going to do everything digitally recorded with 500 takes and make sure that we spend, you know, eight weeks in the studio making the perfect record. And I hate to say it, part of this is Mutt Lang, right. And, and things yeah, like yeah. the, the Def Leppard records. Um, all of a sudden, everybody went down that path. And we took it to its logical conclusion, which is listen to pop music today, right? It is so sterilized and perfect. It sounds like it's being played by computers, even when there are musicians involved. And that's exactly the opposite of what I'm attempting to achieve. Like I want to get back to the organic nature of things. Yeah. One of my favorite songs starts off with the drummer plays a piece um, and then uh, it's actually R-O-C-K in the USA, which you would think would be one of those songs that was too perfect. But if you listen closely in the beginning of it, it goes, then you hear the drummer drop his sticks in between the drums. He picks up another set and they keep going. I mean, <laughs> Squeaky bass drum pedals all over Led Zeppelin records. Oh, my God. Yes. Them. <laughs> it's it's awesome. Um, I, I honestly think that that 
we need bands that that are willing to do that and just say, um, I'm not going to say the word. We're we're trying to keep things clean. F it. Just let's yep. do it. Right. It's not about that. It's about making sure that you know you get the song down and that like people believe it. Right. And that's the believability factor. And I'm sorry, it's like going to see a, a movie that's loaded with CGI. We've all done it. We go to see the big Hollywood blockbuster and we sit there and we go, man, this is so fake looking. Like it doesn't even feel real. It feels fake. And that's exactly what we have in records now. I was just sitting in the break room the other day and what movie was on? One of the worst great movies of all time, Attack of the Killer Clowns from Outer Space or Killer Clowns from Outer Space. It is so bad. It's hilarious, right? And yep. and then there's the Toxic Avenger, and there's um, you know uh, Killer Tomatoes, and and I mean when you take these movies, you know uh, that these guys did back then, they were they were totally shoestring. Budget. Imagine if they one tried the to make them quality. One of the greatest horror movies of all time was done on a shoestring budget. Uh, you know, less than a third of what a lot of blockbusters were done was. Um, uh, uh, Halloween. There's a there's a ton of there's a ton of them, man. Halloween, Evil Dead. Um, I'm trying to think of all the all the uh, the super like even the first the first Friday the Thirteenth movie had a budget, but it was super low. Um, yep. All of those those franchises were were notorious for being like ten thousand or twenty thousand dollar movies, and then turning around and making <laughs> millions at the box office in the seventies and eighties. Classic examples: the movie Phantasm. Phantasm was made by friends. They were all buddies. Yes. They were going up and shooting a movie in the woods. And if you have never seen this movie, it's worth watching, right? But they I shot, love that movie. They shot this movie on less than $20,000 in 1977, right? So uh, 1976, 1977. It took them almost two years to make it. And then when it was all done, um, they made oh – gosh, I want to say they made like 20 or $30 million on the movie. Some crazy astronomical amount of money. Um, that's Don Coscarelli. If you're interested, you can check that movie out. Um, but that's the point, though, is like I grew up watching cinema and thinking about that same stuff, which is that these guys didn't – they weren't interested in like, hey, how can we make this perfect? Just good enough to make it believable, right? Like that's that's kind of right. how they looked at it. And, and that's just it. Our movies are becoming sterile as well, and I'm sure that's already been happening. But um, that's that's one of the biggest problems is, you know, a great Batman movie was Michael Keaton. And when you think about it, there was almost no CGI in Michael Keaton's Batman 1989. There was virtually none in the Nolan stuff. I mean, that's what people really yeah. don't even recognize there is like they did everything they could real. And then yeah. all of a sudden – you get the, the Justice League push, right? And then they make Batman v Superman and the whole movie's a CGI mess. Yep. Yep. I, I want to say that they, they probably even hired uh hired a, an AI to write it because <laughs> it's it sounds bad. It like it's poorly written. Oh. Yeah, can't wait for that new uh Harley Quinn. Oh, that's right, it already happened. Um uh, somebody so Yeah. Somebody was um they were talking about like what's the future of music, right? So like people are people are ticked off because of electronic music, and I think this is maybe a, a worthwhile discussion to segue into. People were ticked off because you know electronic music is replacing instruments and all this stuff. This argument's been going around since the first drum machine showed up in the in the seventies, right? Um, and like, oh, now you're not going to hire drummers, etc. And now we've gotten to the point where it's like, now you're not going to hire a band, but you still got people writing music, right? And then they're saying like, 
the next evolution is to have AI write the music and then you don't need people at all. And I, then a lot of people are arguing that like the, the next argument in music will be, is AI okay um, for, for writing music or not? Or is that really art? Well, you know, while popular music may be running down a hole that hopefully it will come back from, I, I get to see the hope. When I see an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old coming into Guitar Center, buying a guitar, buying a real set of drums, um, buying a real amp, there goes the train. Um, That brings hope to me that that there is still people out there. They still want to play. And you know what? I've been listening to more and more of the popular music. And it, it may not be my thing, but at least it's doing that, is this indie and shoegazer and um, uh, a lot of this other um, music that is bringing instruments back into music. Um, and, it, and if we want to talk about somebody popular that's still using instruments and still using musicians and still really pulling it off, it, um, we can talk about Bruno Mars. I mean – um, the the fact is that there are there is popular music out there that wants to be heard that is musical. Um, part well, of what could it, kill it. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I I mean I agree. There's definitely um, and I'm just going to point this out. Like, there's definitely a movement right now in music that's kind of rebelling against what was going on in the 80s and 90s in terms of scrubbing down music. And I think that's not, it's, it's neglecting the pop scene, but there's definitely the CD underbelly. And I, and I noticed like, so I've been watching, um, uh, who's the, the guy that's friends with, um, Red Shoal, the, the studio guy, I forget what his name is. Gray had a dude. Beato. Uh, Beato. I've been watching Rick Beato. Uh, he do it, do his, um, his mix videos where he like examines mixes and popular mix engineers and their tips and tricks. And it's so funny because he's ripping these guys up, not ripping them apart. Like he's not being a jerk, but he is like, because he's showing you what, how the nineties, like how, how crappy it really was because like, he'll take, um, he took like Chevelle raging against the machine. Um, and there was like, four or five other really popular bands. And he was saying they were all done by this one mix engineer. And here's the sample he used for the snare. And here's the sample he used for the kick. And this is how he got that sound. And it's like, you realize, oh my gosh. And he plays the clips back to back and you realize they all have the same drum sound. And you sit there going, so the drummer plays it and then they trigger it. But it's like, you never really get to hear a real drum on a track anymore. Nope. Not since the seventies. And even today, that's still going on. I mean, that's rampant. Um, oh. And now that I'm like more clued into it, because like I'd always kind of sort of known that that was what was going on. But now that I'm more clued into it, like I can pick apart even like modern records of people that you wouldn't think would be doing this sort of thing, like Joe Bonamassa, for example, where they're literally going through and just wiping the the real drum sound and putting these, you know fail these uh these pale uh facsimiles basically across the track and then you wonder how much of that's like going on with other instruments too because um like you could have a so let's say bottom house goes in with his band right and they do a recording and then he leaves and then they bring in the other band that's going to play the real parts which are like here i'm going to play the bass for him you know and it's like covering up his own guys and he may not even know it because at this point it's in the mix engineer's hands it's out of his hands 
And then he gets the mixes back and he approves and signs off, doesn't realize it. Um, you'd like to think that he would know the difference between his bass player and another one, but do they even care at that point? I mean, if it sounds great, who cares, right? I honestly think that when it comes to Bonamassa, the, the records are a, can I say a They're necessary like evil? They're like their own yeah, thing. Yeah, because the more popular stuff is, obviously, I think, I think, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, his concerts, his live videos and, and recordings um, are much more popular than the actual album. He's definitely album. making more money, more money on the road than he is making yeah. records. And the records yeah. are promotional material to promote the road. And you right. can tell because like he doesn't sound anything like if you listen to the Battle of John Henry, that record, he doesn't sound anything like that on stage. Like the band never really sounded like that on stage. Um, that's kind of like this deep Southern blues thing. And like they just sound like a real good like Led Zeppelin style band, you know, um, yeah. that's that that's at least that's my general impression of it. And even like Black Country Communion, the records are totally different from what they sounded like live. Um, yep. And he doesn't care. It's just like whatever. They'll buy it. Um, and that keeps me on the yeah. road. And then I can do my thing. Yeah. And that's cool. Yeah, and like, the truth I, is – yeah. I, I actually appreciate that more than I appreciate bands that try to replicate the album live. Do you know what I mean? Like there you are mean, bands that try to do that. You mean the Eagles? And, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I roll my eyes so hard. Jim, you know I don't like the Eagles. And if you don't like it, go to hell. Go listen to some Steely Dan because it's much better. Um, you know, they even talk about, you know, turn up the Eagles because the neighbors are listening. Uh, cause you know, you turn it up when you're fighting cause then nobody can hear you. And that's the only good thing about the Eagles. That's what, cause nobody for. listens. That's what, the, that's what it's useful for. It's Muzak. Um, <laughs> I actually, so okay. like Joe Walsh, I went to go see him live and I like Joe Walsh, but I don't like the Eagles. <laughs> I, I gotta say this. Okay. So I was a fan of the Eagles in the seventies, right? Um, up until a certain point, I was a huge Eagles fan. And then it it spun around on us. Um, and to be honest with you, they, they quit when they were ahead. Um, the thing is, when they came back, it was just, okay, we got to get these guys to play exactly what we had recorded before. And that's just boring. If I want to listen to an Eagles concert, I am not spending $600 a ticket to listen to them do um, what is effectively Muzak of their own mus old music. I want to hear something different. They're, the My problem with the Eagles, and it isn't just their music. Like I don't like their music because it's so sanitized. And, and they were doing it pre-1980s. Like they were trying to make perfect records back in the 70s, right? And what bothers me about the Eagles is that it was so sanitized, and then all of a sudden they split up, right? And everybody's like, oh, this is a terrible thing. And then what do they do? They go off on these solo careers, and it's the same crap. Like, it's literally the same music written by different people. And then they're, and then, like, I even feel like some of Don Henley's stuff is like trying to be very Pink Floyd ish. Like, I can hear distance in the music way more than in darkness in the music. And it's like, God, like you can't even imitate somebody well. Like you, yeah. I mean, everything that's great about Pink Floyd is the ugliness of that music too. Uh, I don't. Yeah. I mean, yes, there is definitely perfection in Pink Floyd music. I'm not going to deny that at all. But it's the the dark underside of it that that attracts me to it. In the same way that the Doors does the same thing. Like I love Break On Through. Why? 
because that has one yeah. of the ugliest sounding like whole things in it. I mean, it's just oh, crazy yeah. how like how they were able to tie a hook into this like terrible sounding chord you know when <laughs> yeah when when they were moving uh into that part of the song where it goes break all through break all through break all through break all through he, just and it's almost like, he sounds like he's losing his damn mind <laughs> <laughs> and they're just going like okay let's keep going <laughs> when is he gonna quit yeah i don't know we'll just keep playing <laughs> as awesome. evidence right so all of the organ players at that time were playing hammond b3s right and then some of them maybe had like box continentals he played a forfisa and he was yeah. married to that thing because he liked the fact that it sounded demented. <laughs> and and that was a big part of the the door's sound, right? And Robbie Krieger, oh he picked guitars that were like dark and ugly sounding. Like he picked the SG because he knew that like nobody else was using it the way he was using it at that time. And he tried Listen to, to writers on the storm. He tried to reinvent <laughs> rock and roll guitar with an SG. Like and it's really yeah. funny because it really took another twenty years before that happened with with ACDC. But like he was he was basically he was a Les Paul guy actually. He was a Gibson guy. His Les yeah. Paul had gotten stolen, and uh, yeah. so he went down and bought an SG. And he's like, it's just a Gibson. Like it was a. In fact, I yeah. think it was a Gibson Les Paul, quote unquote. And then uh, yeah. he was using it to do um to do that first record, and he just I just became his main guitar. Now he's a, now he's a hardcore SG guy. He's got he's got infected. Oh, yeah. He has a signature SG a sixty one, um that yep. you can get, which is a killer guitar, um, and uh, that became like his his synonymous thing. Even though he used like three thirty fives and all this other stuff, that was the guitar that that like he became synonymous with. And his whole thing was like everybody else at that time was trying to be Chuck Berry. Right, 19, 1966, 1967, actually as early as nineteen sixty five, and he was going, I want to do, I want to be something different. So he was into like Indian music and all this other stuff, even before dudes like John McLaughlin, like took that to another level, right? Um, and so that's that's kind of what I'm getting at here is like. He, he drew from a well of inspiration that was totally different than everybody else's. And because it was an orthodoxy was not a conventional sounding thing and actually made some pretty abrasive sounding music. Um, never mind you know, the fact that he had a flamenco background on top of that. So that's what I was going to say. A lot of people don't know that he was a flamenco guitarist before that. So mm -hmm. he was used to using nylon string um, acoustics. That and, that uh, riff from Break On Through is a flamenco thing, yeah. and even the uh, he's got this big slide in there that's like a big part of the riff, and you have to do it consistently over and over. I can play that song, and actually, I w I've been wanting to put it in my live set for a while. Um, but uh, that that whole song is like just the juxtaposition of like Latin styles with like Jimi Hendrix chords on top. I mean, that's basically what they yeah. were what they were doing because um, they, they're using uh, it's a bossa nova. Uh, backbeat, I think. I, I want to say it's a bossa nova backbeat over like a yeah, that's rhythm. Nova. Um, and carnival, carnival organ with like yeah, this crazy E chord progression thing. Yeah, dude, it's that song has some interesting stuff going on. Uh, that whole record, that that you know, we we've talked about some pretty big records, but like that one's um. It's got some sort of mythological status with me because if you listen to it, every song on that record was either, was either a top 10 hit or 
could have been a top 10 hit and has become one since. And it's just, I mean, it's flawless. It's a masterpiece. And, and then they, they didn't have anything like that after that, except for LA woman, which is the other masterpiece in their catalog. And I, I, I've always said that the doors were the, were the American Beatles because they only had like, they had a bunch of records, but they only had two that were really, really good. And that's kind of the I way I it, feel about the Beatles too. For me, it goes, for me, it goes the doors because that was the first one I heard. Right. I mean, not, mm-hmm. um, I was a little kid and then it was Morrison hotel. And then it was LA woman. I, and I liked strange days. I will admit to liking strange days. No, those are good records. Actually, I fell in love with uh, L.A. Woman when I was before I fell in love with the original, with the, the self-titled, um, and it was just because. Actually, it's going to sound really funny, but my brother had a copy, and he let me have it, and it was kind of scratched up. But I was like, "Oh, I'll play on my CD player," and I got I got addicted to that record. And then later on, I got the self-titled. I actually went and bought it, and that's when I was like, "Okay, now I get it." Um, I do. St- I to this day, I think that the self-titled is actually better. But I have a very soft spot for for uh, LA Woman. Um, there's some some really interesting, and you want to talk about abrasive, by the way. Um, there's some really interesting stuff on that record. Um, but yeah, you know, my uncle was a stoner. Has probably heard these, right? Oh yeah, my uncle was a stoner, and he listened to uh, you know that first album over and over and over on the on the um, record player. When I was you know I would be sitting at my grandfather's house and uh, grandparents house and he would he get his chance at the record player man he'd put that thing on and uh it was it was crazy and then of course i had turned six and morrison hotel was out and he ran out and bought that album he was like oh yeah morrison's got the and so i had that thing you know glitter into my head and and of course la woman well, did, jim doesn't was, know that he was dropping tabs of acid while he was listening to this stuff i, I have no idea what was Don't going on all i know then. he i'll never forget he was like jimmy jimmy come here i'm i'm like six it's like come here come here you gotta hear this <laughs> and he would and he would just like you're doing now you're talking about the different riffs and stuff he goes listen to this listen to how he's doing this listen to this and then he would pick up a guitar and he would do it and said listen how listen how this is um, and, and of course that, I mean, I, for me, Manzarak's keyboards were scary. They were spooky. I mean, literally yep. for a little kid, they were frightening and it was a cool kind of frightening. Carnival clowns. You're sitting there that, yeah. Carnival clowns. Actually, I like the one they did with the, uh, where they experimented with the horns. I forget which record that is, um, the, the name offhand, but that, that's a good record too. Um, that was the one. Was right that Soft before. Parade? I think so. That was right before they did uh, "L.A. Woman" too, and that's a great record as yeah. well. Um, yeah. But you know, Jim Jim had the voice for it; like he was perfectly matched to to sing with horns or like a like a big band type scenario. Because oh. if you didn't know, and this is this is again the abrasion thing coming out here, his idol vocally was Frank Sinatra, yeah. and yeah, if you, put and you can hear in, it. You put that into perspective, like that guy's a freak compared to Frank Sinatra. Um, granted, I have tremendous respect for him as an artist, but I'm just saying like the way that he carried himself in the media and the press and like publicly, um, I there the band now kind of comes out and says, yeah, a lot of that was an act. But but at the same time, it's like 
to be able to put on that act and to be able to do that in a time period where you were going to be ostracized for it, which he was, um, is pretty impressive. And it says something like Frank Sinatra was a poster boy compared to him. I mean, uh, especially at that time before, you know, Frank got married to Nancy and, and all that stuff, not Nancy. Um, it was before yeah. he got married. The, the lady who's in uh, Rosemary's baby. I can't remember her name. Um, oh, it's a great movie too, by the way. Yeah. Um, you're talking but, about the, uh, the lead in Rosemary's baby. Yeah. I forgot what her name is. Uh, Mia Farrow. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, see, I'm only now remind you folks, I'm only 35 years old. I have done my history homework. <laughs> well, okay. So here's the, here's the thing for me. So at, live at the, um, Coliseum, right. Comes out doors, by the way, live at the Coliseum comes yeah. out. And when he says, you know, father, I want to kill you. Mother, I want to kill that, you. Everybody. Did they stopped. edit it on that? That Did they edit it on that version? Not in the record. No, my my uncle, I don't know if he got it overseas or if he got it in state. But yeah, because we had I the think, unedited version. I think the, because um, I think the, uh, so the album, like the actual self-titled, they edited out the F word. Um, and part of it was yeah. because, you know, obviously the subject matter was even more like, huh? Um, it was more guffawing because he was singing about basically the Oedipus complex. And yeah. people were like, what did he just say? And they made it, they made them change that. They took it off the record. Um, and I know that they've released the original takes of that with the words put back in. Um, and yeah. I heard him for the first time a few years ago and I was like, whoa, like that certainly changes that song quite a bit to hear it that way. Even though I'd always assumed those words were there. Um, it was like, I don't know. It was just a different place. And I kind of feel like that's a disservice to him that the music went without that for so long. But there, and again, there's a classic mm-hmm. instance like Joe Bonham also like we were saying, here's a, here's a band that makes such great art that it can only really be appreciated live because they would have been in trouble if you went anywhere else and did it. Um, again, right. the Ed Sullivan thing, obviously where he refused to change the lyrics. I mean, that's choir boy stuff compared to what he was saying on some of those records. Um, and uh, if you've heard the soft, is it the soft? No, it's not the soft parade. The um, uh, American poet, which is him doing poetry with the, the doors behind him. Um there's some stuff in there that's like, whoa. Um, and it, it, you have to understand, Jim really liked using certain words just to get a rise out of people. And and yep. he had no guffaws about doing it and no qualms about doing it either. And so, like, there's a song on there. There's one on, on there in particular where he uses the C word over and over. And the guys were like... Yep. The, the guys in the band were like, yeah, that's Jim. Like he was very fond of, uh, of getting a rise out of people with that one. Um, so, you know, that's just the thing he used to do apparently. Um, and they also talked yeah. about, I've heard, I've heard this story said many times before. Cause like a lot of people talk about the alcohol abuse of Jim Morrison. Um, I don't know if you've heard this story, but like the guy said, he wasn't actually that big of a drinker. That, that they no, made that yeah. out, out like in the movie and a lot of the unauthorized biographies and stuff like he was this huge alcoholic. They're like when he did drink, right. he was a problem. But they said a lot of the times when you'd see him on stage with with booze or whatever, he was drinking iced tea out of whiskey bottles because yeah, yeah. he wanted to, to give that perception 
that he was a drunk. Yeah. Yeah, he um, was he one of the first shaman. ones to do that. That alcohol yeah. was a shamanistic thing for him. And it really wasn't he, that's not what it was at all, because when he drank, he got uncontrollable. Um, so Well, when you um when you look at uh if you if you go back and look at the doors, not you, but the listeners, you go back and look at the doors, ask yourself, when did Polly Shore join the doors? I mean, tell me that <laughs> Yeah. Um <laughs> Dude, dude, dude. So we're talking about the doors. Other bands of that period that were like that were like good because they left their mistakes in their music and left their rough edges. Black Sabbath. Yeah. One hundred percent. I mean, we're talking Tony Iommi. Okay, so let me let me put you in frame of mind. If you haven't if you haven't thought about it from this perspective before, Tony Iommi does a does a solo. And I I swear, three quarter of his songs on the first three records have a solo idea like this where he's going to play a, an improvised solo and then he's going to do it twice and leave both takes. So you've got like these guitar lines that are kind of following each other and doing these weird things. And it's very psychedelic, but most people would look at that and say, pick the right take. But he's like, no, we're not going to pick a take. The whole point is to have two takes and just leave yeah. them on the track. And it, I, you know what? I've always wondered how much how nightmarish it would be for him to like figure out what he's going to play live, because <laughs> listening back to what he did, like, well, which part was which take? Because there are times when you can't tell like which is which. Now, obviously, he has access right. to the to the mixes, so he could probably mute one and play the other, and you know, away he yeah. goes. But um, and and a lot of it's so similar that you could get away with like a delay or something like that. And they, back then they would have used like an echoplex or something. Um, right. But there, that he's also a classic example, Tony Iommi, of uh, an artist who's not afraid to make things sound nasty. You know, the other guy I think of is, um, and I've chased his tone for years, uh, Richie Blackmore. All right, Richie, I got Richie, before Richie Blackmore, we leave in rock in rock yeah, before. Yeah, before we leave uh, um, Iommi, I never knew until recently that he was in, for a short time, he literally played in Jethro Tull. Yep. 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 Um, I did not played, know that. So he played with them briefly when they were out of a, when they were between guitar players. So, like, I think yep. he was already in Black Sabbath when he did that. Um Yes. And there were so I and I know they shared drummers at one point. Um, I, I also know that Ian Gilliam of Deep Purple came and sang for Black Sabbath for a tour um, because yep. <laughs> they were they were between singers. That was before they hired uh, Ronnie James Dio. Um, Dio they, also yep. set, they also set Dio on fire in the studio. That's a whole other story. Um <laughs> They did. They did. They set him on fire. They they doused yeah. him in lighter fluid and then lit him on fire because they were out yeah. of their minds. Um, oh yeah, those guys. And they cool. probably literally were out of their minds because apparently those guys were huge cocaine users. Um, yeah. This, as the story goes, they used to have somebody follow them around with a briefcase filled with cocaine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was like independent of the band so they could travel. And if they got caught, then that's on them, you know, and they paid them very, and that very was the well reason he that. didn't, that was the reason he didn't want to be in Jethro Tull because Jethro Tull were like businessmen and they would show up and they were professional. Yeah. And Cause they were basically be, jazz musicians. He was like, 
I don't know how to wake up by 9 a.m. What are you kidding me? I was like, I don't, I don't even get up by 9 a.m. Let's like get somewhere and, <laughs> and be dressed. Yeah, so what are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so apparently so, yeah. that was around the time. No, so that was before Black Sabbath because they were still calling themselves Earth. And he left calling, yeah. Earth to join Jethro Tull and then was with them for a very, very short time. And then came back yes, to Earth. Months. So he was between September and November 1968. <laughs> so he probably played yeah. like three or four gigs of Jethro Tull and was like, the hell with this. Like, um, yeah, the and, expectation uh, to be in the studio at 9 a.m., dressed, um, you know, uh, in, in tea, and you've already had breakfast and everything else. He goes, I don't, I don't do that stuff. And they expected him to show up for meetings. He was like, meetings? I'm not doing meetings. <laughs> Well, at that point, 1968, I mean, Jethro Tull probably actually was like a business band at that point. They were making yeah. money. That's my, my, would be my assumption. Because another they band in like 67. Yeah. I loved Jethro Tull. Until. Uh, I still things... love Jethro Tull. Yeah. It, it went well, on. It I changed mean, on me. Late 70s, it got kind of yeah. weird. But like early yeah. 80s, late 70s. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting that these bands all had like – they all arose around the same time um, because actually it's really funny. We were talking about Deep Purple, right? So like Richie Blackmore because he's a perfect example of somebody that right. doesn't mind having a little bit of ugliness in his music. Um, Richie Blackmore was like trying to form a band in 1966, 1967 after seeing Jethro Tull. And he was like, we could do that. And then they did the first Deep Purple record, which was like a mild success. They had a cover of Hush on there, which didn't yep. do so well. I mean, we, it, it was a, it was a good single. Like they sold a lot of copies of it. Yeah. But the problem was immediately after that single launched, Black Sabbath came out. And they're like, oh, now what are we going to do? And Led Zeppelin right. and all these other bands broke at the same time. And they basically fired half of Deep Purple at the time. Yeah. And then went and hired the Mark II lineup. <laughs> And that's how we got In Rock. And In Rock yeah. is the record I was going to point out because there is stuff on there that literally has like the organ sounding like a cheetah. Like, and, yeah. and the guitar <laughs> sounds like it's blowing up and crashing on one yep. song. And you're like, what in, what in the world? Like even in the era of Jimi Hendrix, because remember, that's one of their contemporaries. I'm listening right. to In Rock as an adult and comparing it to like um, Axe as Bold as Love, right? And I'm like, yep. I think in rock is what for, for like your hardcore musicians, maybe not necessarily just your average listener, but I think in rock is like more technically disturbing to listen to. Like, Oh my God, what did they just do? Because there's, like I said, there's literally a song on there where he's making the organ sound like a cheetah. You're going, what? Yeah. Like, I mean, and, and I'd never heard anybody, but, and I still haven't heard anybody play the organ like John Lord did. Um, but to hear that alongside Richie Blackmore doing his thing and doing some of the similar approaches, I believe that record was not the famous Stratocaster into a Marshall combination either. I believe it was a 335 no. into a Vox AC30, which makes it yeah. even more like what? Um, and wasn't check that he record using out. A, if you haven't um, listened to In Rock, you haven't lived. Wasn't he using a uh, a tape uh, to give him the, had, the push? For the AC-30? Some kind he of tape an, recorder? I think back then he was using a Dallas Rangemaster. 
but I think that's it. Yeah. The next record, Master. he took, uh, they had this like a Kai tape recorder or something. It was Japanese. Yep. Or, and uh, he took the preamp out of that and had that put in a box. And then he was plugging into the preamp from that. And then that was just driving his Marshall a little bit harder. Cause at that point he switched over to Marshall's. And um, right. then of course, later on, so there, here's the famous story, right? Like he had the he had the Marshall Majors. They were designed for him, right? The Marshall Major was nothing but a 200 watt PA head uh, with a, with a guitar front end on it that they that they designed for him because they, because he was like, I need something louder and bigger. And uh, he had he had uh, what I think he had eight by twelve cabs for it. Like he had them build him eight by twelve cabs, which which his roadies hated. And they ended up they ended up doing the same thing that um, Pete Townsend did and cut him in half. Um, but that's the famous at the Rainbow Show, or not the Rainbow? What they call that? Uh, the the big show they did with uh, Joe Lynn Turner, Fireball. There's a there's a concert on YouTube and you can see his amp blow up. That is one of those Marshall Majors. That is the Marshall Major, in fact. And the 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 sad truth is that amp is actually now back in the hands of Marshall Corporate, right? And apparently there's a guy that like oversees that amp and, and a lot of the other like historical amps that they have. And they said there's nothing stock inside it. His tech gutted it and rebuilt it from scratch because the uh, they did not like the sound of the Marshall Major. So there's never been a faithful like uh, Jack, you know, like Marshall reissue version of a Richie Blackmore signature because it's its own thing. Now Richie Blackmore, of course, is an England endorser because he's a soldier of fortune, um, and that's that's his thing. But um, he uses a Powerball, I think, as his primary like yeah. his primary thing. And if you've heard Richie Blackmore's tones when he was younger, Powerball is nothing like what he sounds like ever. Um, it's kind yeah. of a funny like they're totally paying him to play that amp, and he's totally done the same thing there where he's had his tech gut it. And it's and it's its own thing. He had a he had a Richie Blackmore signature, I think, from Engel for a while too. But uh, I've heard that that was gutted, and they put their own stuff inside it. Um, and it probably has that famous like preamp circuit in it. Which so the the guy uh, Solo Dallas, are, are you familiar with him? He's the guy that uh, that cloned the yeah um, the wireless unit for um, uh, the ACDC and that the, the ACDC, Van Halen wireless right? unit. Yeah. yeah that, well, uh, everybody was using it back then. Right. So even deep purple is using it. Um, <laughs> I've been waiting for him to discover what that preamp is because when somebody gets a hold of what that preamp is, you know, there's going to be copies of it floating around. And I expect oh, that yeah. he will be the guy that does it because he's into that like weird stuff that people use to get their tones thing. Um, and if he makes one, I'll buy one. I, I, I will because I've been after that sound for so long that I I have to have one at this point. I have to. Right. You know, we <laughs> we talk about that stuff and, and the fact is back then um records were typically written and recorded in a studio in a few days. Um it was uh uh that was the thing that, that caused me to remember um the IOMI interview was that um he talked about how he and uh, um, the guys from Black Sabbath went in in like two days. You know, they were they were done with an album. They were like, "Why do people need months and weeks?" And he's like, "We didn't have that kind of money, and we didn't have that kind of time. We went in, we cut an album, we went on the road." And it's funny because that's the turnaround. You know, it kind of comes around in our discussion. 
because that's the turnaround. They weren't worried about going in, getting perfection. You know, the, the, um, like you said, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, John, uh, Mutt Lang, uh, effect. Let's call it the Mutt Lang effect, right? Um, yeah. he had not had a chance to get in there and perfect these albums. So rock and roll was even right up through Leonard Skinner. I mean, you listen to those, those first Leonard Skinner albums and, uh, uh, pronounced leader Skeenard and, yeah. um, you know, uh, street survivors and that stuff. That's some, that's some incredible music. They, the, the songs, like you were talking about, um, deep sure, uh, for me, deep purple, um, is in rocks and machine head. If you, for me, that those are the albums, you know, um, I actually and, really and, like and these are albums, think we are too. Yeah. And these are albums you can listen to back to like the whole album. You know, it's like, I'm just so as we're talking about this, I, I agree with you completely, but I was, I was curious. Um, I pulled up the uh, Richie Blackmore Wikipedia page and they actually have a comment in here about his uh, 200 watt Marshall majors. This is hilarious because I have no idea if this is true or not, but in the 1970s, Blackmore used a number of different Stratocast. Oh, not the Stratocasters. His amplifiers were originally 200 watt Marshall major stacks, which were modified by Marshall with an additional output stage. Um, they generated approximately 27 dB, which, which I think is actually supposed to be 127 dB, which is the threshold of pain. Um, right. And then to make them sound more like Blackmore's favorite Vox AC30 amp when cranked at full volume, which is really interesting. He preferred the sound of his Voxes. But he knew that he couldn't get him with enough power, so he had Marshall build him amps that he could he could make them sound like boxes, which yep. totally explains why he sounds like Rory Gallagher. Yeah, I've yeah. always thought that there was a connection there. Also, interesting to note that he was a uh, he was a Bill Lawrence guy. He liked Bill Lawrence pickups. Did not know that. Really? Um, and yet, I yeah, think that's what is it? A love affair with uh, synth guitars. We have a um, Blackmore signature in Guitar Center in Virginia Beach, and that that guitar has a very particular sound. I wonder it's, if that's what it is. I wonder if it's those Bill Lawrence's. Uh, well, so in the in the actual like uh, signature strats, they were Seymour Duncan quarter pounders. Yeah. So they're not actually the Bill. Lawrence oh no! This guns. is a, this uh, is a custom shop one. This is not a signature one. This. This is custom shop. This is um, then it may they may be built they may be Bill L's, but I don't know Bill well, L actually the company actually makes these pickups anymore. They may not make them anymore. Right. I was gonna say they're probably yeah, there's some probably some kind of clone. Yeah, that's what I would figure. And and that's fine. Like if that's what's really in yeah. the guitar, if it's based on like his famous guitar, it may not actually have Bill L's in it, the real guitar. And that may be part of that, but he had an affinity for using Bill L's in various strats. Because he's an he's a good guy that's been like um, synonymous with the Stratocaster for very little reason, actually, because he doesn't play Stratocasters exclusively. He's played a lot of guitars, with him, including uh, Fender Telecaster Thin Lines and 335s, and um, he plays a lot of uh, nylon string now, which is kind of weird. But um, there's an also a little blurb in here you'll like, Jim, which is there's a thing where he talks about, I like popular music. I like ABBA very much. There's very much a stigma, you know, like that whole thing. It's like, dude cut the crap he's one of the guys that they asked him they're like well who are your who are your influences and he's like well if you've heard me then clearly you know who my influences are 
Like I, I read that he's one of the worst dudes to interview. Cause he's like a jerk. Yeah. Um, and I read an interview with him one time where he's like, well, clearly Hank Marvin was one of my influences, but there, but no one else really, I don't really have any influences. <laughs> I'm blazing. I'm blazing my own trail, even though he's totally ripping off Bach in his music. Right. Like it's, it's the whole thing anyway. Um, but he's so, and actually even in that regard, going back to our original topic um he plays bach but he plays it with distortion and ugly and he fits it into rock and roll music yeah. which is like that's totally the 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 poster child for what we're talking about here is not being afraid to be a beyond technically virtuosic and more about the feeling than about the technique which by the way he has techniques and drove uh technique and droves now like he's the only dude that I think, Hey, I think he's 70 something years old now and he's doing like sweet picking and stuff. Yeah. He's 74 years old. Sweet picking, yeah. tapping. Like he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Van Halen's in oh. his sixties, you know, like he's, he's 15 years older than oh. Van Halen is. So. Yeah. It's uh, it's not um, easy. Jim, Jim, let's talk um, about, let's talk about some perfect players. Now let's talk about the guys that are like super perfectionists. And don't make mistakes on records that people really admire. Okay. Okay. Can you think of any? No. Yes. Um, Steve Vai. Oh, I think Steve makes makes mistakes. Listen to. I don't uh, think he leaves them in his records. Oh no! Listen to Tender Surrender. That song yeah. specifically. Is that recent? Places... No, no, no. It's an old song. But there are places in there like yeah, where he just goes like whammy nuts. And there have been times in his music where he'll like he'll like literally punch in a whammy thing because he wants to make sure that it's bent in tune. But there are places in that song where he's like just goes off and just leaves it. Um, but but for the most part, I would agree with you. Yes, um, I think he's a guy that like will spend forty hours getting a take, you know, for one solo, and then and then go out and do the same solo live. That he's gotten criticized for that too because. Um, I know I have the live of the story in London DVD, and if you listen to the commentary, there's a part in there where where um, uh, Billy Sheehan says, "Steve, you know, you really work really hard to make sure that these tracks are are identical to the album. Like when you you work really hard to make sure your guitar parts are like up to par." And Steve's like, "Well, not really. He's like, I just try to play the stuff that people remember." And then Billy kind of laughs and says, "Like the whole song," and Steve and Steve yeah. just kind of laugh kind of laughs it off, you know. But I mean, like there are definitely moments in those concerts where it's identical to the record versus some of the moments where he stretches out a little bit. And again, he's a guy that live is different than on the album, but like we definitely know that those dudes exist. They're perfectionists. Um, My favorite album think? by Steve Vai is not a Steve Vai album. Which one is it? Oh, Yankee Rose. It's definitely. Eat him and smile. Yeah. It's eat him and smile. It's a good record. Uh, it is uh, Passion of Warfare is superior, clearly, because Passion of Warfare. Oh. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm kidding. yeah. I actually really like no as for, a guitar for, album, obviously. Yeah. For, for as far as vocal records go, like that's definitely the best one he's done. Because Fire Garden yeah. was a vocal record. Um, what was the one he did with? He Dead did and some Townsend? stuff with. That, uh, yeah. I like Devin Townsend, I like, but I hated that record. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was I like, like what are you doing? <laughs> that is exactly what th went through my mind. I was like, and this is because money? 
I don't know. What? Honestly, Steve Vai is one of these guys, and I'm gonna I'm gonna sound like a complete asshole here, but um, Steve Vai is one of the guys that like everybody likes his music, and I can respect his talent across every record. He's got one record I like. I've listened to everything in his catalog. Well, I like Fire Garden too. I've listened to everything in his catalog. I the new stuff is drivel. I I cannot stand anything he's done since like Fire Garden. Um, I liked Fire Garden. I liked some of Ultra Zone, and I liked Passion and Warfare. Um, and there's some good stuff on Flexible. The rest of his catalog is just like, what are you doing? Like, come down to earth, man. You're 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 not what you think you are. Um, no one is. And and I mean, Satriani he's an just artist released. He can't, he can't, he, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. He's an artist. And Can we? Why does everybody make a leap from Vi to Satriani? I, because no, because Satriani, I was only talking about how he just released an album, or I mean, a, a, a song called 1980. Yeah, and it truly has his sound and feel from 80. I mean, he really, he really did a good job with it. I, you got to listen to it before you tell me. Oh no, it's just drivel. All this, no, it's it, it's good. I, just um, a song. I don't know if there's an album. I don't know if it, I, I'm just saying. Just no, 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 the song. No, no. I, 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 I know. I know. I, I like. I don't hate hate Satch. I just think that Satch is like <sighs> Satch is so far in the other direction of what Steve I. It's like Steve I got to the point where he's inaccessible, right? Um, where his music right. is like really difficult to comprehend at times, um, which I'm okay with that. Like I listen to Frank Zappa for Christ's sake. So I mean, like obviously, yeah. Um, Vi is Vi is kind of up that alley, but I think I think Frank Zappa like you know when you listen to a Frank Zappa record it's going to get like that, but Steve Vi like there's almost no joy in it. Like there are times where he's literally just making something complicated to make something complicated, and you're like, I don't. I mean, this is too abstract, you know. Um, whereas like Joe Satriani is the complete opposite. He's a guy with the same talent level, and yes, you will hear me actually say that he. He he could do the things that Steve Vai does, but he's more interested in making earworms, and yep. like that's just totally bizarre to me. Um, I I'm not asking him to be Alan Holdsworth. I just I I feels like there's like I don't know. It feels like his music is is super commercial on purpose, and I say commercial because I, I mean what I really mean is accessible. Um, and I just, yeah. I have a hard time keeping up with it. Um, I have, I'm not saying let me, that like, let me say right this. or wrong to that. I, it, right. Good. Yeah. I, I'm just saying that, um, for me, Satch, um, what you just said about him is why I can listen to every single Satch album. I, I mean, I'm not going to listen to him back to back to back. I'm not going to listen to surfing into the alien and then, you know, um, uh, the latest I'm, I, you know, I'll listen to, you know, them every now and again. The surfing with the album Alien is probably my favorite, but to to hear him is to hear a a, a guy who who knows, hey, I'm doing an instrumental, but I also want to sell some records and I want to do a tour, so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna make stuff people want to hear. If you have you seen him live? Have you gone see him live? Yeah, I've seen him live. He was terrible. He was drunk that night. We've talked okay, about. I him. loved it. <laughs> oh, that, okay. He was he, drunk or ill. He that was night. drunk. <laughs> A drunk really? or ill? I'm not sure which. <laughs> he was definitely I, not I'm probably on his game. ill. 
He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's going to go out and drink when he's doing this thing. But yeah, that would be really fun. I, that um, challenge accepted. If we ever meet Joe Satriani, we're going to get him hammered. Let's do it. Let's <laughs> yep. do this. I got now that now that uh, Sweetwater's probably canceled this year. I'm doing the Sats thing next it's year. Let's no, do this. It's still on the docket, man. They have not I canceled. It. I just reached out. I reached out to my rep to find out if he can give me some inside info. But anyway, um, I don't the, think uh, they know yet. The thing I no, nah. the thing I I like about Satch is when I've seen him live, he doesn't worry about being perfect, and he is very gracious about giving the other guys room to do stuff too. Like, okay. You take a solo. I'm going to go over here, stand next to my marshal, and look cool, and you guys do your thing. But when he had I, Stu Ham I, I just on base, I mean. Yeah, of course. And um, uh, who's the Mike, Michael, um, who's the guy that played the guitar and keyboards for him? Michael something or other? Mike Mangini. Mike, um, no. Mangini. Shit. Yeah, no, it wasn't Mangini. Sure? Yeah. Yeah, it's Mike something runner. But he Mike does his own thing too, so Yeah, I know. He has a lot of his own things. Mike Keneally, not Mangini. Keneally, that's what I'm at. Yeah, you had yeah, the you had the sound right. It was just, he's yeah, still he stole Keneally from um from Vi. Oh yeah. <laughs> he did. He did. There's no um, question. As a matter of fact, he probably did it during the the one of the G three tours. Yeah, G three things. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. man. All right. Okay, let's talk about somebody that removes the or puts too much perfection in it and kills it. Set that that uh, Eric Johnson. Um, set uh, Eric Johnson. Yep. But I can't it listen to any more one or two of his songs. His first two albums are really good. Uh, yep. since he did, I think it's Bloom was the record they did in the nineties. It was like hotly awaited. It took him like eight or nine years to get it done. And post that it's just been drivel. Like I have not liked anything he's done since that. And, and I, like, I, I've seen him live multiple times. Like he's one of the few guitars I've seen more than once. And the last time we saw him was at gear fest last year. And it was bad. Um, and we didn't stick around. I saw him do an interview. I think it's with Beato. And um, he goes, uh, Beato was asking him, how do you think about, you know, soloing and chords and blah, blah, blah. And all he really did was riffs. I could have told you that he was going to play. I mean, it was terrible it's because so I should because not he know. Has a... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> No. He um, he is one of these guys that has a wealth of information and knowledge about a great many things. He put out three really good instructional videos in the 80s, like 87, 88, and then has like quietly kept lots of things secret that he does not want people to know that he knows how to do or that he's figured out. Um, and I don't know whether it's just because like he paid his dues and he's like that dude or whether it's just like never occurred to him that those are things that other guitar players don't think about. 
But case in point, this is the thing that I share with people when people talk about like Eric Johnson being so open and honest with everybody. Eric Johnson's a guy that recorded one of the most famous guitar parts of, you know, all time because it gets played on the radio for people's intros and everything else in Cliffs of Dover. And everybody thinks that's a strat into a Marshall with like a parallel fuzz face and the tube screamer like his normal rig. I'm here to tell you that was a 335 into his Dumble ODS. <laughs> and that was oh, yeah. not him that told people that. That was the engineer that recorded that track saying, yeah, I think he used the 335 and the Dumble on that one. Um, and to this day, like I see people tone chasing that and they're buying Fender Twins and Deluxe Reverbs and Plexis. And, you know, using these crazy like delays and reverbs and things. And I'm going, dude, it's just a dumble. Like there's there's really not much else going on in that track. There's a plate reverb, a dumble. And that's pretty much it. A little bit of delay. He used a little bit of delay on that one. Um, but it, he was also talking about, you know, how famously he will use like he could tell you if he's plugged into a certain outlet that he doesn't like in the place and stuff like that. And he goes, well, that little bit adds up here and there. I'm like. Oh, God. So I heard a story, and this may not be true. He was working on a signature amplifier with Marshall, and this predates um, uh, Slash getting his signature, right? So he would have been like one of the first dudes to get it. And he was working with Marshall on it, and the project fell apart because he kept – he kept sending amps back and telling them to like reverse wires and stuff like that speaker wire. No, you're not using the right polarity. You need to turn it around. Like it's, it's polarized the other way. And he was super into that thing. And like people thought he was crazy. Now he's not crazy. Okay. His ears aren't better than anybody else's either. He uses a very specific setup that has no ground. And so the things that he hears are a result of all of this like noise that's underneath everything because he uses um like have you ever seen his pedal board layout which he's changed it and I think he's gone to using grounds. I think he's finally kind of committed to all right, I got to modernize. But he used to use his pedal board and it was like 4 feet wide. And like two feet deep and his pedals were in this like crazy orientation. And if you'd ever seen him move a pedal like in a video or whatever, there was a chalk outline where that pedal went. And when I first heard he had no ground, I realized, oh, he's got his pedals oriented for optimal noise reduction, which is yep. also why he always wanted his amps on the road cases behind the cabinets because he did, he wanted them to be a certain distance away from the speakers. Like the guy's not stupid. Like that all makes sense when you realize what he's doing. But if in right. context, if you didn't know he was running groundless, you'd be like, you're nuts. You're a madman. Now, granted, I've also heard he's one of the most electrocuted guitar players on planet earth because he gets close to the microphone. So, you know, yep. it is what it is. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the, who, who, somebody toured with him and they did an interview on Amps and Axes and they were talking about it and they were like, 
yeah, I picked up his guitar. He let me play his guitar one time. I picked up his guitar and I walked her up to the microphone and I, I went test. And he's like, I got zapped. Yeah, zapped. And he's like, and then I proceeded to get zapped for like the next six minutes because he said every time I would come within like two inches of the microphone, I get I get electrocuted. And he's like, yep. when I walked away from the stage, he's like, I talked to Eric and he's like, dude, he's like, you're going to get electrocuted out there. He's like, happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> happens all the time. It's it's almost like he just, Johnson, he just doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. I, I met him actually. He's I got a I got a signed album from him, and I got to talk to him for a few minutes. We it was at a show long, long time ago. Um, he, he's a uh -huh. nice guy, but and 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 you wouldn't know he's keeping secrets. But I'm sorry if you're gonna tell the audience if you're gonna pretend like that whole Eclipse of Dover thing was done with your marshals, dude. Cut the crap. Everybody knows. Like at this point, that's common knowledge. I'm not. I'm not dropping knowledge bombs on our listeners or anything. Like you can find that information out all over the place. It's been said many, many a time on the internet and in magazines at this point. But the whole point is that he didn't. He wasn't going to tell anybody what he did. He wasn't going to give that secret away. Right. And the other. The other thing is, uh, he did that tour, the 20th anniversary of Avia Musicom tour, and you can see there's a rig rundown of that tour, and he's using like basically the period rig. That he when he toured that album, and there's not a Dumble in sight. So, it's is he still maintaining that level, or did he not tour with it? And I doubt he did. But there is on that instructional video from many many years ago. If you look in the back in the rack, you can see the Dumble. It's there, and uh, he was the guy that turned Stevie Ray Vaughan onto it. And apparently, they both got into it because of Jackson Brown. So. That was a whole other because I guess they used him. They both used him as a producer at some point. Um, I know, right. I obviously Texas flood for um, Stevie, but uh, yeah, that's that's a crazy story. And the other thing is, uh, I've also heard that that Eric Johnson was very fond of the uh, the Mark II C plus, which is the the other secret weapon of the eighties that everyone had, but no one wanted to talk about. <laughs> I. You know, how do I say this? For me, Eric Johnson's music was a little too perfect. Just, just in my humble opinion. I could be wrong. Robin Ford's first record. Uh, I don't know if it's his first. Talk to your daughter, that record. I mean, it's great, but it is the definition of like, 80s excess production and like just being perfect to the point where it's like sterilized and and it's a great record i still love that record and nothing's ever going to change that but i mean i every time i listen to it i think like yep this is the 80s <laughs> like this is definitely like 1987 1988 you know um the first band to really buck that trend even even before um we get into the grunge bands who were like completely bucking that trend like for example um which I think it's an interesting topic. We'll, we'll get there. But um, Pearl Jam, like when that, when they broke and like everything was ugly on those records. But um, thinking about uh, Robin Ford, like in the perfection that went on into that stuff. And then the band that broke all that mold was actually Guns N' Roses, which they had moments of perfection, like the November Rain solo. Um, but definitely Appetite for Destruction was like, counterculture at that time even though it was like embracing the hollywood like underbelly 
it was very much like counterculture of the time. Hey, you know, all those pretty like, like poison, the guys in poison, like this is what, this is what poison wants to be. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, that's what I, how I feel about, about that record in particular. Um, and then yeah. later on, of course you got the grunge bands, which is funny because as grunge starts to come in, then you get into drum replacement and you get into these people that are on the records that, that like, don't even like that. The original band doesn't even know that they didn't play their parts on the record, which is, that's, that's like a whole <laughs> other can of worms. Um, you get into things yeah. like nine inch nails where, the band that was on tour was definitely not the band that was on the record and were being paid like a hundred dollars a night. Um, and, and being forced to sleep in the back of like literally a conversion van. Um, yeah. I mean, you could see that the whole industry just like went on its head, like Jane's addiction, right? Like there's a band that, you know, was the polar opposite of what you saw in the eighties. And we, we went through that, that, like grunge period and then we went to new metal which actually did it again and went back to the 80s like overproduction there was some stuff that was definitely scro- scro- uh, like um scraggly and and seedy in the, the new metal movement but y- then you end up with like bands like nickelback right and creed and um I, I i generalize around that era but like those bands sort of cemented this idea that there's perfection in rock again and then we had a rebellion. We had the Black Keys and the Vines and all this other stuff. And then the, we haven't had much rock music really since, since, right? I mean, it's a CD underbelly thing. You've still got the Foo Fighters, you know, and you've still got some of the bigger acts are still there. But ultimately, like, people have kind of turned their eye towards hip-hop and, and uh, electronica and pop music again. So I think we're going to come back around, and I think we're going to get some really ugly rock music. Um, which is going to be a revolt. I think that's what towards. Yeah, I. Let's face it. That's what that's what happened in the in the nineties was, um, you know, uh, guys like um, Pearl Jam and them were like, you know what, screw this. This stuff is too too cute. Um, let's turn this around and let's make it fugly again. And um, you know, as much as they can get crap or not get crap for it. Um, the guys in in uh, uh, of course before November Rain, don't get me started in November Rain, but uh, Guns and Roses were saying, "Yeah, let's be rocking again," and they were leading that charge. That was what nineteen ninety or ninety one, eighty seven. Was it eighty seven? Appetite came out. Appetite, yeah, eighty seven, yeah. And then they and then uh, Use Your Illusion came out in eighty nine, ninety. 91 the mm-hmm. tour lasted until 92 it was a long tour there was like yep. six i want to say like 600 dates which is why yep. those guys went completely nuts on the road because i mean you didn't come home <laughs> i mean like for like two years right right you didn't um, see your family you didn't see your friends it was and and when that was all said and done like even the tours they're doing now i imagine are similar in nature to the to the way that they handled user illusion because they do 180 dates a year i mean it's like you're home six months out of the year and for somebody like axel who's like universally hated could you imagine getting up in front of people no wonder the dude like took 13 years to record chinese democracy um exactly can you you imagine um 
and then this takes us back. This this takes us back all the way to like why Metallica sucks. <laughs> no, Metallica doesn't suck, but Metallica's are assholes. The people in the band suck. Um with the exception of Kirk <laughs> Hammett of all people. Um, which which is hilarious yeah. for me to say, but um because because Headfield Headfield was openly trying to pick fights with Axel Rose the entire time they were on tour together. Um, because they did that that was it Monsters of Disaster or whatever tour and Masters yep. of Disaster. And then um Axel like Axel was being kind of whiny about it apparently. And then like Lars got into it too. And it's like, why were they picking a fight with with Metallic or with like uh, Guns N' Roses? That doesn't make any sense for a band like Metallica to pick a fight with Guns N' Roses. Like, what what's that nope. all about? That's that's about Hetfield's a drunk, right? And yep. Lars is Lars is a, for lack of a better word, a little bitch. I mean, um, that's mm-hmm. been that's been said by many people over the years that Lars hides behind oh, yeah. Hetfield, um, and that likes to be a smart aleck about it. Um, so it's really, it's, and, and they're not the first one to say, it. by the way, I don't really care about the guys in Metallica r- very much, but I, the point is that like, this has been said by many, many people over the years that have worked with Metallica, that they are like hardcore jerks and that, that they're not professional and that the only one amongst them is the hired gun who is professional. And that is Kirk Hammett. Oh, the who, bass player. Well, Trillo, oh. yeah, too, but, um, but Trillo, now that he's a full fledged member, I mean, when he got signed in and like he was like a session player, and then they made him a full fledged member, he kind of like, I can remember some interviews with him where he was like big on himself in a very strange yeah. way because it was like, well, I'm I'm Metallica's new bass player and their first real bass player since you know Cliff Burton's death. And it's like, yeah, dude, that kind of. No one is gonna believe that. Like, you know, everybody got mad because they they killed uh they killed Newstead's tracks on um on uh, Injustice for All, you know, like it's just crap. And and now I've even heard things yeah. like like Metallica insinuated that the reason they did load and reload was because Newstead was pushing the band in that direction. I'm like, I have a hard time believing that. I really do because if you listen to any other Jason Jason Newstead music, it's nothing like that stuff. Um, no, I don't think he had a, like a say, I, I think honestly, that was all them trying to be commercial. Um, and actually if you watch that, some kind of monster, you'll see Kirk Hammett is like not even involved. He's like off surfing and stuff. Like he's barely even in it because it's just not important for him to be in the middle of these like fights and scraps because he's smart enough to like, just lay low, keep my head down, be happy. I've got millions of dollars. It does not matter whether I make another record. I am set for the rest of my life. All I have to do is be like one with the universe. And that and that is Kirk Hammett in a nutshell. Um, which is why he could do something like the wah off with uh, Mrs. Smith. If you haven't seen this video yet, you should check it out. It's good stuff. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yep. I, I, I'll spoil it for you. Uh, Mrs. Smith is now the the uh, Dunlop wah-wah champion. Um and uh, come I on, think, come I on! You knew that Kirk, was set up. I don't think Kirk was very unhappy to give the title over to her. It kind of seemed like Kirk yeah, was like, "I don't think so." Yeah, I think I would. You can have it. It's fine. I don't. Yeah. Care. Um, yeah, yeah. He he was that was that was very good natured. 
I think it was very good natured and they had a lot of fun. What did she say that she had like nine was or something like that? She yeah, she had so she got the board from Sweetwater that had the nine wah pedals on it. Somebody yeah. that the YouTube <laughs> that was she awesome. reached out to a YouTuber and got the board from them so that she could do the yep. wah off with yep. and it, that that was killer. Like that and, and she actually used like all nine of them at once, I think. I don't know how they yep. pulled that off, like with a board or something, but she had them all going. It was like, you know, going down the chain and getting each one. And it was a, this whole thing. Yep. Thought it was uh, great. But it was good. I thought it good was great. Vi- good video. Great publicity. Yeah. Positive stuff Lots going on in music. Why can't we oh, have this from God. everybody? I know, right? Why can't we have people who get up and just have fun together on a stage? And, you know, it, it, I actually think this is this is my prediction, and we'll see if I'm wrong. This is my prediction. I think now that people have been forced to sit at home and play instruments, we're going to see more live music after this. I think there's going to be a glut, not a glut, a rush, a bum rush of people who want to be involved with each other and want live music. I, I really think that that's going to come up, not just from the musicians, but from people. I, I really we're do gonna see a lot more gear oriented crap too, a lot less gear oriented because because I think people are going to please. I think people are looking at their situation right now and they're going, we're financially not in a position where we should be running out and buying new amplifiers. I mean, uh, new gear. Um, <laughs> Jim about spit on his coffee when I said that, folks, um, <laughs> um, where we should not be running out and spending all this money on gear because the economy is unstable. Like I've been telling my wife, we're going to be, we're going to be like the deepest recession since the great depression. When we come out of this, because we're talking about two months of like totally limited prosperity. Right. Um, And you know, she got her new job at the travel thing. And like, we don't know what's going to happen with that. We've been sitting here kind of talking about it and it's it's all up in the air. No one knows. And we're sitting here kind of like trying to plan Ask. for that. And we're going, we're all in trouble now because we don't know what's going to happen. All right. So let's, let's look at history for just a minute. Something that occurred after the Great Depression, actually during the Great Depression, by the way, um, but the Great Depression, World War II, World War I. I, I got them backwards. <laughs> World War I, World War II. Um, those things that happened, the great unpleasantness of the early 20th century. Hold on. Yeah, I, I, I've got almost done. Korean War, Vietnam War, and uh, of course, um, the Cold War. Something that happened during all those things that, that is amazing and, and was wonderful, although it was terrible in, in the time, because it takes terrible times to create this, music got good. There was stuff that came Agreed. out of it. Agreed. That was creative. That was emotional. That was not just pop. I'm not saying that we didn't it's have fuel. any pop. Take my word for it. It was pop all the right. It's fuel, and 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 it, musicians and artists and filmmakers and artists like all the different arts. We feed off this stuff, and I guarantee you, there are That's some right. of the best music being written right now. Um, right somebody now, at as we speak with something and they're going to have a big thing out of it um, and it's going to make an impact on the guitar community and you know people have been talking about guitar and music in general being dead and like guitar being dead 
it ain't going to be dead for much longer because I, this is going to be a rediscovery. For, for you got two months of people sitting, literally twiddling their thumbs, especially the ones that are out of work. You got nothing to do. You you beat all your video games. You don't want to spend any more money. You got the old guitar sitting in the corner. You pick it up and you start playing it again. And right. I honestly, think we might get some really interesting interesting punk music out of this actually, um, because you know two months is not a ton of time, but for some people. This a lot of people don't three or four months. Yeah. So a lot of people don't think about the fact that the, the first wave of punk was post Vietnam. Yep. Yep. And when you think about it, we already talked like about a lot of music that Yeah. Um, a lot of music that were coming out during Vietnam, and that was the doors and and the who and um the you know the stuff that we mentioned earlier deep purple and all that that was in vietnam war they were we were the stuff that fairies wear boots that's a that's a song black sabbath obviously um that's a song about the 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 terrible stuff that was going on at that time and war england pigs. was in a horrible recession war pigs that's the one i was trying to yeah war pigs yeah I mean, what? it doesn't get more obvious than that. I mean, the first line is literally generals gathered in their masses. <laughs> I yep. mean, and <laughs> that's not, that's not even it, symbolism. England, <laughs> like that's, <laughs> yeah. England had not yet recovered from World War II. Yep. Yeah. They were still recovering. And 60s. actually, a lot of the music, the reactionary British music from that period is really reacting to the fact that an entire generation of men was lost. Their fa- the fathers of the people that were making the music were all dead. I mean, that is like a huge part of that cultural heritage was that they literally lost an entire generation of men. And most of the artists from that period who have like a lot of the clout and stuff either were that person or lost somebody else formative in their life, like an uncle or something like that. And you'll find, and you'll find that theme. Uh, that's a heavy in Pink Floyd music. Um, Pink, I was just going to say Roger Waters. He, he spent, he spent a career writing songs about how yeah. he never got to know his father. Pretty much. Um, that, and uh, uh, let's see. Um, uh, come on. Uh, British steel from uh, Judas priest. That is, that is a, um, yep. English band trying to come out of the, you know, the, the dirges of, of the um, things that were going on. I mean, not everybody was the Beatles. I mean, come on. It was some crazy stuff. And, and if you look at American music um, that was coming out, you had the, you know, bad moon rising, uh, the, the CCR um, stuff, the, uh, um, you know uh, what is it? They call me Mellow Yellow. That if you listen uh, to um, the whole San Francisco scene of the late '60s, The Grateful Dead, and um, uh, come on, Jefferson Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, Jefferson Airplane. Um, later, uh, Starship. Yeah, no, not Starship. Please, no, later no. we're Starship though. Yeah, <laughs> Jefferson <laughs> yes, Airplane, were, Jefferson Starship, and were, then just Starship, and then. Now it's Galaxy Class? Enterprise? I don't know. I don't know. 
It's it's Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, that's the new band. And and now they sound like a death. They're like they're they're like a uh, black metal band, right? It's Battlestar Galactica, and they're a black metal band. Um, By the way, there's a Uh, black metal band called Coronavirus already. Um, Oh, you can look them up on YouTube. Uh, I was terrified. Um, You will be too too, early. Too early. uh, It's too soon. It's too soon. (laughs) Definitely. Yes. Um, Yes. Much too soon. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, when you look at when you look at that stuff, um, these guys, even uh, well, obvi- it, it's so obvious in um, Abraxas from uh, um, Carlos Santana. I call uh, that mescaline. We've got. Yep, yep. There we go. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> all, all right, all right. So you heard the story. I'm going to tell the story, and then we're going to end the episode because I think we've made a okay. point. Uh, so yeah. he goes to Woodstock, right? Uh, Carlos and Carlos was like yeah. they performed a lot in this in the the San Francisco scene, but they they had really not done anything outside of there. And so he's freaking out the day before he's supposed to play, and he's hanging out with Jerry Garcia, and Jerry Garcia gives him mescaline. Yeah, and he's like, "This will help you mellow out, man." And then that's why when you see Carlos Santana on stage, it looks like he's about to have a stroke the entire time. Yes. Because he's he tripping on drugs. Out. He didn't do a whole lot of drugs. Okay. So he had no idea. That's what he said. He said it was the first time. And he's like, I was just like, what is going on? Like, um, he's yeah. like, we, co- we couldn't make out the crowd. And like, it, it's a whole thing. And next time you watch that performance, you're going to crack up because you're going to realize like this is in the middle of like the worst trip, not a bad trip, but like the yeah. worst trip. Um, worst. He was and, and the brown acid might out. The brown acid might have actually been a message for Carlos Santana. OK, like don't eat. Yeah. The brown, don't use the brown acid like that might have been a message for Carlos Santana. Um and so that that whole story, it, I, every time somebody brings up a Braxis, I think about that like performance, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I I just get this image of like Carlos like looking like he's like I need a drink and like like water and like he's just dripping sweat, and he looks like he's like foaming at the mouth and he's gonna kill somebody <laughs> like at the same time that he's just like playing his songs like, um. Truly one of the greatest performances ever, but even funnier if you know the backstory behind it. <laughs> All right. Before we before we give up on that, think about what Jimi Hendrix did that day, though. No, actually, it was the next day. He, well, it, I mean, it, now, it during that. <laughs> I know. And everybody was leaving. It was it, – it, it wasn't everything everybody wants to it, think it was cracked up to be. A ton, a ton of pe- a ton of people had already left. He woke up everyone at dawn playing the Star Spangled Banner. The famous recording of the Star Spangled Banner was him literally like sound checking and then looking out at the crowd yep. and going, "Wake up!" Like, what the hell? Yep. Um, yep. And then they went and they played and like that was that. Because at that time, actually Hendrix, so he'd done the Monterey Pop Festival. He'd had a couple of minor hits here in the states. But he was not yep. the force he was after that, um, and right. it was really funny because even he'd already negotiated the bad deals and he was broke after that, regardless. So even though he was starting yep. to like pick up popularity in the United States, he was still broke. Yeah, and and when you think about it, um, I now of course I'm making some uh, 
assumptions here, but he had only been out of the military, what, three or four years at this point. Um, he had uh, um, maybe not even that long, two years. Um, and uh, so was, uh, he was, was kind of years, actually. He was kind of giving them a reveille at that point, which um, I thought was incredible. And it set fire. If he had chosen any other song, I don't. I think that we went, we might be talking about Hendrix differently um, as far as popularity goes. But because he chose that song, everybody, the news agencies, the um, I mean, this was this was um, akin to, you know, somebody doing something crazy and then CNN getting all over it because that was just um, newsworthy stuff. It was incredible. Yeah, he'd been he would he had been out of the uh, before he made his first record. He'd been out of the military since 1962. He was older than people. 62, thought he was. Okay. Yeah, people yeah. thought he was like super young. He was not young. Like he was, he was in his thirties when when he was popular. Um, he was not a member of the twenty. No, actually, take it back. He was in his his mid twenties because he was a member right. of the twenty seven club. Right. Um, along with Jim, he died at twenty seven. Uh, Janice. Janice. Yeah. Yep. And Jim. We didn't even talk about Jan- Janice, um, because we don't talk very much about the the vocalist, but. The whole Mothers of Invention. Holy crap. Talk about albums that were just raw energy. You mean uh, Mothers of Invention is Frank Zappa? No, uh, yeah. Uh, what am I? <laughs> Man, I need a nap. Um, Janis Joplin and the... Um, uh, what the heck was her band again? It was like that. It wasn't I... Mothers of Invention. It was... um. What's that? I'm I'm Hold trying on. to remember. Uh, Big Brother and the I got Company. this. That's Big it. Brother and the Big Holding Brother. Company. I knew it was a relation. I was like, come on, it's like a Big Brother and the Holding Company. And those albums were raw, and she was raw. I mean, she had yeah. to be just. When I first heard her, when I was, I, I didn't appreciate it. I thought she was a howling hag. Um, it wasn't until I saw the movie The Rose, which was kind of biographical about her that I really appreciated the things that she went through well, a lot and the of things people, that she did. A lot of people consider her to be like one of the Queens of the blues alongside Aretha oh, Franklin. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's pretty nuts when you consider she only had like three records, I think. And uh, she was young. She died at 27. Um, yep. And she died. I thought she drank herself to death. Heroin overdose. Heroin. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but, it's, scary there's, there's always mama cass too but we'll leave that one for another episode hey mama cass that's another one everybody thinks she choked on a ham sandwich she actually died of a heart attack she died of heart attack. yeah while choking in a ham sandwich she was not choking on a sandwich it's the story no. i've heard you watch too much she's choking <laughs> not on a ham sandwich she was choking but she but she was choking on something else and she had like a heart attack because of it. That's what I've heard. Yeah. That that's like a mis that's like a misconstrued story that they that people have told over the years. Yes. Um, so who knows of that, you know. But yeah, no, another another great and powerful singer. Anyway, uh I've been David. I've been Jim. And tonight we have been the practical guitarists. <laughs>